Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I'm joined today by special guest, Michelle Arpin-Bagina, author, financial advisor, and financial therapy expert. We're going to talk about a few of my favorite topics today, money, mind, and meaning. Welcome to the show, Michelle. It is so great to be here and talk about these topics with you. So when I was researching your background, something caught my eye, and I need a little context. Uh, it said that you grew up surrounded by the outward trappings of wealth, but were always acutely aware that it was all one bad check from disaster. Now, this sounds like a great story, and it also sounds like fertile grounds for building a career in financial therapy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your own money story? Yeah. What I always say is that my uh, childhood morbid obsession turned into a passion and that turned into a profession is basically mm -hmm. what happened. And I can tell it to you by way of three stories, a piggy bank, a Jaguar and a yacht. So my first memory of money was when I was five and my father asked me, can I borrow money from your piggy bank? And I asked him what he needed the money for. And he said, cigarettes. So I said, no, you can't have the money for that. And he took it anyway. Fast forward to when I was about 10, my mother was away visiting family. I was home with my father and my brother, and my father uh, used to run a moving and storage company. So someone that he was moving had a Jaguar for sale, a car that he always wanted. So he called my mother in Rhode Island, where she was, and asked permission, can I buy this car? She said no. He did it anyway. And Garage kept the car in our house and the entire time, you know, swore my brother and I to secrecy. So when my mother would call, I would feel like a crumb that I knew the secret and also was a pretty cheeky 10 year old thinking to myself, does he think she's not going to notice when she comes home? Like, you know, she's going to lower the boom on this. Well, yeah. she did. And then fast forward to when I was 17 years old. So I, I was always led to believe that my parents would pay for my college education. And I stood on the dock of a marina, newly graduated from high school. And my father just looked me in the eyes and shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't have any money to send you to college. They had bought a yacht with my college funds. Wow. Exactly. Oh, so it's not like there was no money. They just spent it on a yacht. Well, you know, I left something out. They made big ticket purchases growing up. So it was a yacht. You name the car. We had it in our driveway. Uh, at one point, my father decided I'm going to get a pilot's license. And then we were flying in our own airplane. But what nobody ever knew was that my parents were always down to their last five bucks. So while we had, you know, it's what I call a, uh, a poverty of prosperity. Mm -hmm. So they ran a good business. They made a great income. And they spent every dime they possibly could. So, you know, it's really no fun when you have a, an airplane and can't afford the gas 
or yeah, and you can't afford the gas, or you thought you were going off to college and whoops, like we're going to pull the rug out from under you. So what I didn't know is that my parents had changed their mind about sending me to college. But the good news is I didn't change my mind. Right. In fact, it was a story, Daniel, that it actually took me over 30 years to be able to even tell these stories out of all the shame that I felt around it. And Brene Brown has a great definition around shame, which is the fear of disconnection. Mm. And what happened to me standing on that dock, which I really didn't realize till later either, was that that moment uh, was an energetic disconnection with my parents. It was as if they you know, broke off the tip of the iceberg, put me on it and sent me out to sea mm. to either make it or not make it. And it actually gave me an advantage, which is when something like that happens, when you are completely, you know, when you feel completely disconnected to the life you've known and the, and the family that you thought you had, it literally wipes the slate, slate clean. It's almost like I lost my mind in a way in that it wiped the slate clean. So I had to rethink everything in my life. And the advantage of that was I no longer cared what my parents thought of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do in life anymore because I had to rethink everything as a result of what happened. So then I was free to do what I knew was right for me. So with with the benefit of some years and and some some expertise now on your part, what were the drivers of your parents' um, money behavior? Why why were they sort of making this great income but spending it down to the last dime on sort of highly visible portable wealth? Yeah, um, I mean I can always speculate and I can always give you my experiences, but you know if you follow you know, Dr. Klontz's money scripts, I would say that my father was money status and money avoidant at the same time. And my mother was the opposite. She was focused and vigilant. So you had two opposites that attracted. And my father was really, he really, because he made the money, he had very much, um, if I make the money, I have the power, I have all the decision-making in the house. And someone who was a spendthrift, right, which I looked into what that word meant. It's such a tricky little word, right? Mm-hmm. I asked my husband once what he thought it meant. And he says, oh, it means that you're really thrifty when you spend your money. I'm like, no, I wish. It really, right? The origins of thrift, it used to mean prosperity. Mm-hmm. So to spend thrift is to spend your prosperity, right? And when you're up against someone who has that kind of framework you know, no amount of good deed or goodwill or or effort is really going to overcome someone who's got such an extreme point of view about money. So that's what I saw growing up was, you know, I always say like my parents' fights in the house were like breathing and secondhand smoke, right? Mm-hmm. They were epic battles all around money. So what it gave me was a very early understanding that we have emotional connections with our money. And obviously I was seeing it playing out in a relational way. And then there was this spillover onto me. Much of that answered your question. No, no, it did. I want to stay with this topic of of money scripts and I want to explore their origins a bit and, and think about how we should think about these things. So if we go into our sort of famous psychologist bag of tricks here, we would have Freud and others saying that these 
early experiences in your childhood are highly formative and, and really quite deterministic, right? Whatever happens to you as a youth, like that's kind of going to shape how you turn out. Uh, Adler, Frankel, others would take uh, an approach that says, no, you can be different, you can be other uh, than your past if you choose a new goal and sort of go in a new direction. Thinking about your own life, certainly, but also the research you've done, where do you land? I mean, are we sort of shaped uh, definitively by our environment? Can we be bigger than that if we choose to go a new goal and have a new direction? Where do, where do you think we land? Yeah, um, I actually think both schools of thought are true, right? And in my in my opinion, like I've certainly been a product of both, and I could have easily followed, you know, followed in my parents' footsteps or have gone my own way. Um, and I even think about like one of my greatest successes is that our two sons have the emotional and financial security that I longed for as a kid. And that has really given them the ability to grow up to be who they're meant to be because they're not burdened by someone else's anxiety or issues. Right. So there's that freedom in there. So I feel, you know, very accomplished in doing that. And then I think, you know, like all good negotiations, all money conversations start within, like even like we always talk about like talking about money, but I think we have to talk to ourselves about money first. And it's really, what do I think? What do I believe? What, what are my values? What gives me meaning out of money? Sure. Is it helpful to look back and say, well, where did all of this stuff come from? Or is it just as important to just say, okay, this is where I am right now. And what do I want to do about it, right? What, who am I being, right? How am I showing up with it? What do I have? And where are the disconnects between what I say that I want versus who I'm being, who's really showing up and what I really think and believe? Because I think in identifying, becoming aware of those disconnects, yeah, it can be helpful to know where they come from because I think it helps us make sense of our world but then there also has to be that next step into, okay, sort of just saying to ourselves, this is how it is. And we all make this decision of, okay, but this is how it's going to be. Because I think the other stuff is your inner parent or your inner child is in control. And only the adult makes the best decisions, right? So I think this process is really just tapping into that that adult and, and deciding, you know, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. So maybe maybe Freud's great insight is that we understand how we were shaped by our earlier experiences with money and how we got to the place we we are today. And there's there's value in sort of dredging that up and examining it, but it doesn't have to be determinative of of what we ever are. It doesn't have to be all that we ever are, and we can we can shape our future growth. Uh, with with our own goals, when you when you think about your own shame around your money story, I mean you um, you quite easily tell these stories now with a smile on your face, and it's very engaging and, and very witty and punchy. Uh, but it it sounds like it wasn't always that way, and that you had this fear of disconnection. How did you personally get to a place over that thirty year time period where you're able to talk about these things and make more sense of them for yourself? 
it's sort of a crazy thing that I did. There's a capstone thing I did, but I think before I tell you what it is, what I've got to go back to is, you know, the one thing that I learned from my father is he was, he is the epitome of growth mindset before Carol Dweck came on the, came on the scene, mm-hmm. a constant learner, a constant hobbyist, just always, you know, we decided I'm going to get an airplane license and got it within three months. I'm going to build a car. I'm going to learn to play guitar. He started learning Spanish in his late sixties, just this constant curiosity and learning. And he passed that down to me. Mm-hmm. And part of growth mindset, I think is the ability to move yourself forward. That's one of the gifts that that gives you. And just in studying a little bit about growth mindset, one of the things that I realized was that while my life, I was able to propel my life forward and accomplish the things that I wanted, right? Including a college degree and a career and a family and all of those things. And by anyone's outward measure, I'm a success and I have always felt like a success, but I was carrying grief. I had never grieved the loss of my parents and the way that life was, or the way that I fantasized about what life was supposed to be back when I was 17 years old, right? So my grief was pretty stuck in, you know, three prior decades. What what I started doing was two things. I started to write what my experiences were, not from what happened chronologically, but how did I feel? when I heard this news at 17 and what were my twenties like, which my twenties, you know, I gave up my entire social life to go to school, um, work full time and go to school at night. It took me eight years to get that degree. So I gave up a lot to do it. So I just put myself in my own curriculum of starting to really write how I felt about it. And then came this time where I said, okay, I now have to get this out of me. I have to start talking about it. And I didn't even realize what I was trying to, you know, rid myself of. Now I know it was grief. What I ended up doing was signing up for a one-day public speaking course in New York City. And I started writing the script before I even got there. And it was just one day long. We had group sessions and then we would break apart into, um, you know, small, where we had general sessions and we would break apart into group sessions where we practice what we had just learned. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, at the end of the day, we were asked to tell any story from our life that we wanted. We had two minutes to do it. And they said, just use any techniques that you've learned from today, right? In this refresher course. And that was my moment. Mm-hmm. And I almost didn't do it. I had somewhere, I, I I literally thought I was having an anxiety attack or a stroke or both. And my brain, my thoughts just went hijacked and my body totally took over with sheer panic. And something inside of me just really uh, was more powerful where I knew like you have to stand up and tell the story. And I did. And I didn't die because I think I was afraid I'm going to die if I tell the story. And It's as if there was life before I actually told the story and there was life afterward. Mm. And what I now realized was I was processing all of that grief. That's really what it allowed me to do was to release the grief and more fully step into who I am as a human being, because it was holding me back from fully being myself. There was always something that I kept in reserve around people. And that 
I was able to let go. So it was, um, it was a very long journey, <laughs> very hard fought journey within, you know, to be able to do that. I don't recommend people go tell their money stories in a skyscraper, New York city storeroom. Strangers. It's a little, it's a little intense. <laughs> had you tried that 10 years previous, would it have worked? If you had told the same story at a Toastmasters event 10 years previous, would it have worked? Or was, was it the telling of the story that was transformative or was it the, the, the intervening time or some combination? It's a great question. I'm not, I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure I can answer only because when I think when I think back to where I was 10 years prior to that, it wasn't even occurring to me to even ever tell the story. I, I never really thought I would ever talk about these things. It just was, it was in a good place. Like I wasn't, I didn't ruminate on it, right? I hadn't stopped my life from moving forward. I don't think I even realized I had any stuff to deal with. Hmm. It's a it's a powerful lesson, I think, for many facets of life. I mean, we're all storytellers, both internally and externally. And when you look at a lot of when you look at a lot of therapy, when you look at cognitive behavioral therapy and different therapies, really all it is at its core is helping you frame a story in a different way. And, and framing that story in a different way can have a dramatically different outcome. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think there's, I think there's power in candor. I think there's power in uh, breaking the stigma around money broadly, and especially around sort of unpleasant experiences with money specifically. Mm-hmm. And I also think there's a ton of power in, in just taking the reins of your own story and, in you know, telling the story that you want to tell and becoming uh, becoming the author of your own story and not just sort of a passive, uh, you know, uh, a, a passive character, becoming the main character, right? And and right. taking ownership of that. So mm-hmm. you know, at different uh, at different points in our life, we have different money concerns, and and I've been doing some research around this recently uh, uh, with respect to Eric Erickson's sort of s- stages of psychosocial development, right? So for those who aren't familiar, I'll kind of break some of them down. Uh, we've got identity versus role confusion. So this is sort of like, who who am I, right? Uh, in young adulthood, we've got intimacy versus isolation, which is, will I find love? Like, will I find a partner? Will, will someone love me? Uh, in middle age, <clears throat> excuse me, we have generativity versus stagnation. You know, how, what's going to be sort of my big contribution to the world? Uh, And then as our life begins to come to a close, we have things like integrity versus despair, which is, did I live a life that mattered? So whether in, you know, your own life or the lives of your clients, how can we be aware of these different life stages and make sure that we're meeting people where they're at? Mm. Well, I think it always begins with good listening, but I think there's a there's probably a belief system or an attitude that goes into this. Like when you were just talking about all of that, I'm hearing them as stages. Like I think everything you talked about was a, what most people go through in terms of life stage, right? In short, you know, from success to significance, we always hear about it that way, right? Where you think about how, you know, when I was 15, and you would ask me, you know, what do you want for your birthday? And I have a long list. And in my early 50s, the list is a lot shorter. Like that stuff just doesn't 
matter, right, as much. So I think I think there's just a natural evolution of what becomes more or less important in our life as it relates to our emotional and our financial well-being. But I think it starts by listening to what is someone's life like now and where are they aspiring to be? And I think that's what gives you the clues about, you know, where are they and what are they struggling with? Yeah. Right. And I, I think you're talking like identity and isolation and who am I? I think who am I is a lifelong question, right? I think we ask that at all stages of our life, right? Who am I? What am I here for? Mm-hmm. And I think all the rest of the things you're talking about are like shades of gray. Yeah. You know, I think there's, um, I got into this business as a psychologist to actually help uh, folks, folks with eating disorders. That was sort of my, my initial interest in, in psychology. And one of the things that's um, tricky about an eating disorder relative to something, something like alcoholism or substance use is that you can't cold turkey it, right? Like you have to eat, you know, three times a day or more, right? Uh, Often in social situations, you're going to come face to face with with food. Food's going to touch your life. It has to, right? Sort of necessarily. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true of money, right? So for Mm -hmm. for those of us who have hangups around money, money's everywhere. Like money's there when you're trying to define a life of significance. Money's there when you're trying to figure out who you are. You know, money was there for you when you're when you're trying to, you know, chart this path in in young adulthood, and then mourning the loss of the 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 twenties you thought you were going to have versus the twenties that you did have. So I think it's it's like you said, figuring out the the delta between where people are and where they want to be and helping them set powerful goals that propel them along that path, but but also not assuming that everyone's in the same place, right? You talked about those good listening skills, trying to really figure out what's the defining struggle in this person's life right now, and how does money touch that struggle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love what you just said. Um, I've often thought, you know, myself included, you know, struggling with food at times and different times of my life that, yeah, it's a little cruel to have that sort of a struggle because you can't, like you said, you can't just give it up cold Turkey, but I've never thought about it in money where right? you're right. I mean, it just permeates everything and it is a relationship, which it is. I think it's strange to say that we have a relationship with money because it is an inanimate object, but it animates everything in our lives. Right. So it's, it's here whether we want it to be or not. And I really loved what you said about, you know, meeting people where they are and trying to figure out where they are because everyone's growth trajectory, I think is very different person to person, right? So it's really like, where are you right now on the journey? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to know that. Absolutely. So we're going to, apparently we're drawing heavily on my therapy background today because one (laughs) of the things, one of the things that I learned as a, as a young therapist was that one of the first and the most powerful things that you can do for a client is to normalize their behavior. And it's, it's really counterintuitive, right? Like if you get a, um, if you get a client who comes in with anxiety or depression or whatever it is, 
it's actually really helpful to say like, look, there's lots of people like you. And, you know, I think in some ways you would go, oh, well, that's sort of like, oh, you're not special. This isn't unique. That would be sort of a <laughs> sort of a, a negative message. But it's actually quite powerful because everyone's experience of whether it's money, stress or anxiety or, or whatever else, you feel um, you feel like you're on an island. You feel like a freak. You feel like you're all alone. And so one of the, the most powerful things that we can do as a profession, I think, is to, to normalize people's money concerns. When they come to us as advisors or, or coaches to say, hey, look, this happens. And the things that you're experiencing are normal, right? Whether it's fear about a volatile market or some sort of childhood hangups around money. But I think of a lot of advisors don't do this, mm. uh, A, because it's counterintuitive and B, because they think it's giving permission, right? They don't differentiate between saying, yeah, this this happens, and you're you're you know it's it's uh, not unusual for you to feel this way. Is a different thing from saying yes, keep doing that. So, how can we normalize our clients' behavior? How can we put people at peace around money uh, without sort of reinforcing bad behaviors, maladaptive behaviors? Yeah. Oh, so good. I think we all long for. I think first thing is just recognizing that we all long for that sense of wanting to be normal, right? Whatever that is. So I usually joke around with my clients when um, something comes up where they're nervous about the markets, or I had a case recently where a young man has come into a very significant amount of money and it's, it's almost paralyzing him. And he has loosened you know, kind of loosened the grip that he's had on this money because he he came into it without the experience of having earned it himself or knowing what to do with it or any of those things. And he was very reluctant to really look at what he had spent over the last year to support his family. Mm-hmm. And he did do it. And we talked about the numbers and he thought that he had grossly mismanaged what he had been spending. And I was as an advisor who sees what people spend their Mm. money on, I was able to normalize that. Mm. And in fact, I was able to compliment him on, you know, for a family of four in New Jersey, you did very, very well, right? Mm. You're right in the ballpark. In fact, you're on the lower end of the ballpark of what I see other families do. So I think we have to remember that clients do not have this perspective because we don't really talk about money, right? The way we talk about money is very superficial, but we don't get into the nuts and bolts of it like we might with our advisor or our accountant, right? So normalizing to me is not letting somebody off the hook. So I usually joke around and say to people, congratulations, you are normal. Mm. And then I'll fill in the blank and mm. give them some comparisons of what I've seen with other people who have been in their situation, right? I think that's a great way to normalize it. And it's, you know, the caveat is always like, listen, this is what I've seen. It doesn't mean that that's true for everybody, but this is what I've seen. And from my perspective, I think you're doing very well, right? Or you fill in the blank, right? So I think it's important to give people some reassurance because they want to feel normal because I think if they don't feel normal, they're not going to carry on and do the behavior you know, do the things that are really going to um, get them where they want to be, right? And have them feeling good as they're making that progress too. 
you know, two, two things I really like about your approach there. You've got the humor, which I think is underutilized in a big way, right? When we talk about money, like there's no reason we can't bring some levity to this. And then there's sort of that context, right? People do feel like they're out on an island. They have no context for this. They have no basis for comparison. And just giving them that context, whether it's to the upside or the downside, like, look, you may, maybe you are spending a little bit too much, but at least now you know. You have a reference class because nobody's talking about this. You right. know, uh, my siblings and I, this is very dorky, but my siblings and I, uh, my sister sent a, a text out to the siblings the other day and said, what do you spend a month on groceries? And we were, we were talking about it and I'm like, this is funny, right? Like just a bunch of lame middle-aged siblings talking about what they spend on groceries, but I've never thought about it. Like I've never thought about it. I've never thought, was it high? Was it low, you know, relative to other people? And it was, it was instructive just to have that conversation. I read two pieces of research this week that said the number one reason why people don't go to financial advisors was a fear of being judged. And that's where the normalization comes in. They think that their experience of walking into an advisor's office is going to be uh, being reprimanded, being scolded, being told to be more thrifty. And I love it when an advisor says, no, you're doing fine. You know, mm -hmm. and I actually had a friend recently switch advisors because she just said, look, I'm saving 20% of my income. I'm working hard. I'm tired of constantly being berated by my advisor that it's not enough and that I got to dial back. And she's like, I give up. And she, you know, she went, yeah. she went to a new advisor and she was actually doing quite well and was absolutely on track. So I think that normalization, don't confuse it with giving permission. Don't confuse it with, uh, you know, encouraging bad behavior. Let people know that what they're experiencing is par for the course. Congratulations, you're normal. And then go on from there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we have to give them a perspective. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> I've often thought 50% of the reason why people would hang up the phone on me when I back when I first started my practice was not because of me, not because they did or didn't have any money. It was because they feared that they would be judged, right? It was literally, I'm just going to put my hand up to you and hang up the phone. And it's got nothing to do with anything other than I'm afraid to tell you these things because you're going to have some sort of reaction. But the truth is, I think two things, I feel really strongly about this. One, it's not our agenda, right? It's not my agenda that I'm trying to impose on someone else, right? It is not up to me to question someone's values or motivations. It's just my, it's my job to understand what they are, right? Now, I'm not going to help someone do something illegal, but barring that, it, who am I to impose my judgment or my interpretations of what they value or what their motivations are or what their life plans are. That's not my job. My job is to help them. And I always use this term, like I like to overstand people, which means I not only want to understand their perspective now, but I want to understand what their perspective came from. Because mm -hmm. when I do understand that, it helps me to understand why they are the way they are, why they think the way that they do, why they behave the way that they do. And it's just intel, right? So when people will, somebody will open up to you in that way, 
they're literally helping you to understand how to best motivate them and how to best inspire them. Even though I'm a big believer that we're just gateways, Mm -hmm. right? And what I mean by that is I don't have any information that's better than anybody else. It's all available for the taking, right? Mm -hmm. Now I happen to study it. What I do have though is the skillful application of that information, right? So the information is a level playing field. So what do I really have to offer? I have that offer, like just to hold space for people and to be that conduit that it is the safe place that they can come and talk judge free. And in that talking out loud process and getting into action, people actually know what they need to do, right? It just helps them tap that inspiration and the motivation that's within them, right? So we're going we're going full blown therapist today. So we're going to talk about Carl Rogers' idea of unconditional positive regard. Now, the point that you just made beautifully is, you know, there's sort of no new information under the sun. And I would take that even further and say, your clients know what to do. I mean, nine times out of ten, they may not know the specific ins and outs of a given product or a given tax scheme. Mm-hmm. They know they're supposed to spend less than they make. They know they're supposed to stay the course. Like they know the big rocks right. of, of saving and investing. So it's it's not up to us to to sort of scold them into compliance. It's up to us to create a situation of unconditional positive regard where they can flourish and do the things they're not supposed to do anyway, right? right? Where they can feel supported, get that extra 10% of, of help and knowledge to do the things they know to do anyway. Uh, and again, unconditional positive regard, Rogers, would that doesn't, that doesn't mean you agree with anything, everything anyone ever does. It right. means that you believe in their worth and their capacity regardless of what they do or they've done, because most people know the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just go for it myself. I, um, if I I think, you know, it is definitely the golden rule, right? Treat others the way that you want to be treated is definitely in my mind. But I also think about if the shoe were on the other foot, would it motivate me to browbeat someone? Would it motivate me if I were being criticized? Would it motivate me if I were, in a constant conversation of I'm lacking in some way or I'm not doing enough in another way, none of that would work for me. So, and they always say, you know, you attract the type of clients that are a little bit like you. Mm-hmm. So maybe this approach works because that's the type of people that I'm attracting, but I yeah. think it's um, it's kinder and, and it's more effective. Like I've seen people do some amazing things that they never thought that they would be able to do. Yeah. And it's, and they've done it, not me. Yeah, absolutely. So while we're on this topic of, of helping shape behavior, uh, one thing that you like to talk about is something you call contextual self-control. Talk mm-hmm. to me about contextual self-control. Yeah. So this will not be a surprise to anybody listening. So like when I think about my parents, they were highly successful people, right? They ran a business. They were good people. They worked hard, you know, despite some really crappy financial behavior, they also did a lot of really great things, right? Growing up and taught me a lot of wonderful things. They were really successful, but they 
were a hot mess when it came to their money, right? They were failing in the money category, right? So did that make them failures in life? No, it just meant that there was this one area, this context that they played different roles. They showed up as different people, right? So that's what I mean by contextual self-control or what I used to call high performance defiance, right? They were just defiant in this one area of their lives and they were aware of it. That, that they had this problem. They never stepped into really doing the work that they needed to do to become better at it. What, what I've since learned, and I, I follow somebody on Medium, his name is Howard Farkas, who uh, he's a psychologist in Chicago, and he talks about self-sabotage. And what I learned in paying attention to him is self-sabotage is, in his opinion, and I agree with him, it's it's something that we do in reaction or rebellion against our loss of sense of freedom. Mm. That's when we rebel. And that's what I think was going on with my parents, especially my father, like trying to get him to plan, trying to get him to think about money, trying to get him to talk about money, uh, trying to get him to save money. All of that felt like this massive restriction of control. and and a loss of his freedom. And he just rebelled against it, right? So any money that he had, he was just gonna spend. So that's what I mean by, you know, contextual self-control really are the roles that we're playing in different areas of our life and the motivation that we have behind the roles that we're playing, right? So maybe we wanna be a powerhouse in the office and when we come home, a little less so with our spouse, right? And that's going to, that is going to influence how we behave in one realm versus another. So that, that was a long-winded answer. That's what I mean by contextual self-control. Okay. So this is a super tricky question. Let's say your parents are not your parents, right? But they come to your office, right? So your, your 30 years ago parents come to your office today and they're not mm-hmm. your parents in this alternative reality, but all their money behaviors <laughs> are the same as they ever were. Yeah, and you diagnose because I think you've done a great job of diagnosing what was up with your dad with respect to loss of freedom and him sort of rebelling against this perceived loss of freedom. How yeah. would you use that understanding to counsel or work with your parents if they were to, if your thirty years ago parents were to walk through your door today? How would you sort of guide them or counsel them? This is the greatest, most awful question anybody's ever asked me. <laughs> It felt a little evil and a little awesome, I'll be honest. It is. It is tricky, tricky. Um, Okay, so I think the first thing is I'm not a therapist. I am therapeutic Mm. in my approach. So I think there would be two things. One would be uh, they would clearly need to be in the hands of a financial therapist in addition to an advisor, right? I would see that one-two punch would be really, really valuable because there was there was dysfunction, right? There was diagnosable dysfunction. And I'm not qualified to deal with the like I didn't even mention the gambling addiction that was going on as I was growing up too, right? So I was not qualified. I, I'm not qualified to handle some of those types of you know diagnoses. From a behavioral standpoint, what I would use are every trick we've got in the book in terms of managing behavior, right? From the from what we know about financial economics, right? So automating everything, mm-hmm. right? Using psychological tricks like present self and future self, right? Distancing yourself psychologically, 
in in the moment and then bringing that future self closer, right? In the distance, working on techniques like self-talk, right? Not not positive self-talk, but talking to yourself in the third person, right? To maybe give them some type of measure of self-control in the moments where they can actually talk to themselves. Um, I mean, those are the things that come to mind. I'm not sure that's a really complete answer. Well, it was an evil question. So the... Um... <laughs> So it's fascinating to be a quarter, a quarter of visits to a general practitioner, like a medical doctor, uh, end in a referral to a mental health professional, because the relationship mm-hmm. between your phys- between your physical health and your mental health is so dramatic, right? I mean, a lot of what presents as you know gastrointestinal problems or headaches or other things is really symptoms of of stress or anxiety or, or sort of other mental health related concerns. I think there's every reason to assume that a similar number of of visits to a financial advisor should result in a referral Mm. to a mental health professional. There's everything I've seen and the way that money gets wrapped up in our emotional lives, everything I've seen suggests to me that a, a, a high percentage, a meaningful percentage of visits to a financial advisor should have a uh, a co-occurring referral to another professional to work on sort of the emotional considerations that that are beyond the pale of of the average mm-hmm. financial advisor. So I I think there's I think there's a lot of wisdom in there, and I think that might be the whole answer, right? Because until you can until you can get that that part right, mm-hmm. all the other stuff you know all the other stuff is moot. I think it's interesting too to consider. Right you know, his, his love of freedom, which is, I think something that we all have, right. That's a very, um, that's a very human love. And we all have sort of this knee jerk pushback response against constraints on freedom. Is there a way to help him see things like investing and saving as working in service of his long-term freedom? Because when I think about money, I have almost the opposite approach. Like I don't want to spend money because I know that spending money decreases my long-term freedom. The more money I have, the more ability I have to say no to stuff I don't want to do. Uh, and so yeah. I think there's a meaningful way to, to, to take a client's existing, uh, you know, passion that the passion is freedom. And the, the, the root of his maladaptive behavior is, is a love of freedom say, okay, that's fair enough. That's natural. That's normal. Let's take that and make it work for you instead of instead of work against you. So mm, I anyway, love that. Totally yeah. unfair question, but you did well. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, thinking about freedom, you know, one of the things that I have learned, and I think you're you're touching on it, is that um, I think what we don't often understand is that discipline is a very big part of freedom. Mm. And I think I think you're hitting the nail on the head, like a reframe around freedom, you know, could have really been helpful for him. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, in, in other facets of your life, there's, I mean, in in many places in life, short-term exercises of freedom lead to long-term negative consequences, right? You know, you have the freedom to eat a donut every day, but then you have sort of a long-term, you know, long-term health complications. Yeah. You have the freedom to smoke every day, if you'd like, you know, you get to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, but there's, you know, long-term loss of freedom associated with that decision. So mm-hmm. I think lots of places in life, there's sort of long-term, short-term freedom trade-offs. 
and, and helping clients understand those trade-offs, I think, I think is useful. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think there's another component to now that I've had a few more minutes to think about this. So I talk about in, in, in the idea of contextual self-control where the premise of it really is how you do one thing is not necessarily how you do everything. Mm. And I think we're taught kind of otherwise, right? That you, your char- you bring your character in the same ways to everything that you do. And I, I don't think so. So what I help people go through are their prior successes. And I do it really in taking positive psychology and I just turn it into positive financial psychology. So what people will do is look at, you know, pick one, three, five successes from any realm of your life, not just financial. And what you're looking at is, you know, what was your inspiration? What was your motivation? Why was that thing important to you to do, right? Because we know the why is what emotionally connects us to anything that we want to accomplish. And we always accomplish more when we understand that why, that motivation. And then looking at some of the positive psychological elements, like where was hope, self-efficacy or confidence involved? What kind of resilience strategies? Because, you know, getting from point A to point B is never a smooth ride, right? Mm -hmm. So what were your resilience strategies and optimism, for example? Then I have people look at their human capital, right? Not just what they have, but who they are, what they know and who they know. And what ends up happening is people get a 30,000 foot view of how they've done success in the past, right? So, you know, the resilience strategies you might use versus how, what I might use versus the next person, they're all gonna be very different. They're all under the heading of resilience strategies, but everybody has found tools that work for them. And my premise is if you can identify those ingredients that made you successful in one area or more of your life and you look for those common threads, you absolutely can use the same thing. Just pick it up and map it on over to your money. And But we're not taught this kind of stuff, right? To really look at our successes in those ways. I mean, we're not even taught to really think about money, right? Or how to rethink money. Well, and, you know, from an advisory perspective, because there's a lot of advisors that that listen to the show, I think oftentimes just out of uh, habit or ease or a multitude of other things, we have sort of a formula, right? Like this formula works for most clients. Like here comes a new client. Here we go. Like plug and play. Um, mm. we, it's easy for us to get in a routine. But what you're talking about in the clinical literature is called solution-focused therapy, which is really just the act of of asking people what has worked for them in different parts of their life and going, okay, like, here's what you're good at. How do we, how do we apply this, this, this thing that you're good at and apply it to, you know, to, to money now. So it takes a little more time. uh, It takes a little bit more customization, but what I can promise you is that, that your clients will feel empowered that you'll have something that's highly bespoke, highly tailored to their needs, and you'll be off to the races. So I think it's, I think it's a wonderful, I think it's a wonderful suggestion. And it's not, it's not that hard to do. And people Mm -hmm. love to tell their story and they love to talk about their successes, right? So oftentimes, and and again, going back to this fear of judgment, they fear that they're going to walk through your doorway and then you're going to scold them about all the things that they're doing wrong it's such a redirect. If you can say, let's talk about places in life where you're just kicking butt, like, like, where are you just exceptional? 
Mm-hmm. And let's take that level of exceptionality and then apply it to your financial life. Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Michelle, you have been brave and wise today. Uh, I apologize. I get in shrink mode and I just feel like I can ask anyone any question about their life. So you have been uh, really good to share your money story with us today and, and as well as your insights. If folks want to learn more about you and your writing and your thinking, where can they find you? The best places to find me are on my website. So michelleab.com. That's michelle with two L's, ab.com. And connect with me on LinkedIn. michelleab.com. Thank you so much, Michelle. And have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.